We'll turn together to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Tonight we are considering what God has to say here in the opening chapters of Genesis and the scriptures more broadly about the family, about the family. Start in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, the family is not faring very well today, living this side of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. The nuclear family, which is a phrase for that unit, which is made up of a a husband and a wife and their children, uh, that is a quaint idea of the past, the sexual revolution actually had in its sights the destruction of the nuclear family. And that's just a natural consequence of the pursuit of sexual liberty. How can you um, go about and, um, and, and sleep around with whoever you want if you are bound uh, to the responsibilities of a monogamous marriage or the responsibilities of parenting? One writer, her name's Annie Gottlieb, in a book about that era said that it was the generation that destroyed the family. She acknowledges that we could not destroy society, but the family was much closer and much easier, and so we tried to destroy that. And in the words of Carl Truman, the sexual revolution ultimately has one great goal, which is the destruction of the family. It makes sense, of course, for the family is the primary means by which values are transmitted from generation to generation. The primary means where values are transmitted... Now, in place of the values that the nuclear family at one time uh, inherited and embodied and then passed along themselves, uh, we have now societal forces that are hard at work uh, to teach the next generation a new set of values. I'm reminded of that every time I take my kids to um, the Oshimo Library, the Kalamazoo Public Library. There's often books that are on display um, that are on the broader subject of diversity, at least that's how they would be labeled, and they're encouraging, the library's encouraging adults to get these books, adults that might even belong to a heterosexual uh, parental unit, to take home literature that teaches their kids families come in all shapes and sizes and can look any which way. Uh, One of the first of those sorts of books that came out was back in 2015, and it's uh, it's called Antango Makes Three, It tells the story according to the publisher's own description of, quote, two penguins at the Central Park Zoo named Roy and Silo who were a little bit different from the others, but their desire for a family was the same. So a kindly zookeeper gives these two male penguins um, a a motherless uh, egg so that they can experience the same family uh, love that had up until that point eluded them uh, a love that had been restricted just to mothers and father penguins. On Amazon, Tango Makes Three has over 2,500 five-star ratings. It's labeled as a teacher's pick. 
And it's now advertised as a board book, which is, quote, the perfect size for small hands. Don't be fooled. This other worldview that we've been studying these past seven sermons is militant. This other worldview aims to catechize the minds of our children. If we don't catechize them, the world will catechize them. Now, why, why is that? Why do I say it's militant? Well, Romans 8 tells us because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, hostile to him. What we have been seeing in this series is that the war against the created order is really a war against the creator, the creator. Taking aim at the family isn't taking aim at a social construct or a cultural norm. It's taking aim at the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God who instituted the family, who designed the family in the first place. And that's what we're considering tonight, the design God has for the family. It's a plan for the family, and it's glorious, and it's good, and we need to remind ourselves about it so that when we're confronted with these different views, uh, we're not caught off guard, or we're, we're not prone to say, well, that's not right just because I'm not used to it, and, and uh, perhaps would fall um, guilty of the critique that we're just being bigoted. You know, that can be true even if we have a right view, a biblical view. We still can be bigoted if we hate people because we don't understand their position and we don't understand our position. That's not what we're after here. We're, we want to be exposed to what the Bible teaches so that we can see that what he wants for us and for everyone is good. It's good. So tonight, how did God plan the family? That's the first thing, God's plan for the family. After that, we're going to take just a, a kind of a few minutes to, to explore then what sin did to that plan. So, but first, God's plan for the family, then the effects of sin, but then finally, we'll consider God's plan through the family, what God does in families. So first, though, his, his plan is designed for the family. Uh, the family is built into God's determination to fashion humanity after his own image. Look at the text that we're considering, Genesis 1, 28. And, and as I read 27, you see that it comes immediately after he creates humanity in his own image. As soon as he creates humanity, he gives humanity a, a charge, a commission. And it's a commission that actually will enable them to live out being image bearers of God. He tells humanity to do something that he himself has just done, to create. And God blessed them and said, multiply. God says, do what I've just done. Create or procreate. Uh, one scholar says, if humans are to imitate God, then creating life is a basic part of that task. A man and a woman can produce a living soul, this scholar says, right? So, of course, the animals procreate as well, but what can they not do? They cannot create an image bearer of God. God makes an image bearer. He makes two of them, Adam and Eve. We know them by those names. And he enables them to make more image bearers, to do something only he has done. Be fruitful and multiply is a command to reflect God's image. And that command, like other commands in scriptures, comes with God's blessing to enable mankind to fulfill it. So he doesn't tell humanity to do something that's really good for them, but then they can't do. No, God blessed them. It says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. So he fashions humanity in such a way that when they come together in sexual intimacy, a man and a woman can produce life. Now, that can't happen, as we saw uh, two weeks ago, or maybe it was three weeks at this point, 
That can't happen between a man and a man. It can't happen between a woman and a woman. Now, our culture, though, tries to trick itself, or we might try to trick ourselves, into thinking that it can. To, to, to try, I mean, this is, this is what we see happening in society, that this is normal. Uh, that a union between a man and a man, a woman and a woman, it's just normal. This is, this is no different than a, a regular, um, or heretofore regular, union of a man and a woman. So where's uh, an example of, of how culture tries to trick us in that? Well, you see it all the time subliminally if you watch television. Uh, maybe we should just stop watching television. But uh, any ads today will, will uh, include... Um, uh, homosexual couples, families with homosexual parents, just to kind of try to subliminally suggest this is the norm. In one sense, maybe we should just say, okay, maybe that's norm. That doesn't mean it's right just because it's the norm. Uh, But here's another example. Pete Buttigieg, he's the current Secretary of Transportation. He's been in the news lately because I guess Southwest Airlines is is imploding or something, and uh, he's having to get involved. Maybe some of you are aware of that. But he was also, um, you know, former mayor of... um, that city in Indiana that you all will tell me about later, South Bend, I think. But back in September of uh, 2021, he was in the news because um, it was announced that he and his, his husband, uh, Chasten, became parents through the adoption of twin babies. And the headlines were, of course, congratulatory and were uh, celebratory. Uh, he had shared the photo on Twitter uh, of, of the occasion. That's what all the news outlets were picking up on. But to the discerning eye, if you looked at that picture, you would note it, it, there was something off about it. And it was that uh, Pete and his husband, Chasten, they were holding each, had a twin in their arms, and yet they were lying together side by side in a hospital bed. Why would they be in a hospital bed? There's no reason for them, of course, to be in a hospital bed. What, what is this? This was imitation. They were trying to make what this moment of, of becoming parents seem normal by imitating a normal photo that we see from all of our friends and they post on Facebook when somebody has a new baby, what, the, the, the dad squeezes in next to the mom who's really, I don't want a picture right now, but okay, yeah, I know you're going to take it and send it to everybody. And they're there in the hospital together with the baby. That's normal. That's what happens. And so they try to recreate that. But that's the thing. That shows you that this is not natural. That shows you that this is against God's good design because it requires a sort of... Uh, uh, it, it requires theatrics. It requires a sort of intervention. In this case, um, there needed to be uh, an external contribution for Peter and Chasten to become parents, namely the mother who gave up uh, the children. Um, so there had to be a force outside of their union to make it seem normal. Just like those two male penguins need a zookeeper to intervene to give them the family they want because they can't make it happen on their own. Try to make it seem normal. Why can't they make it happen on their own? The answer is because it's contrary to God's design. Um, So uh, God's design is that children come from one man and from one woman. That's how it has to be, and we can never um, fake that. But just because only a man and a woman can conceive a child doesn't mean that any man and any woman should conceive a child. He's given the ability for any man and woman to conceive, but he's not given the permission for any man and woman. That's the other thing. When we look at Genesis 1, we see it's clear that this instruction, be fruitful and multiply, have a family, comes within the bounds of a marital union. You might say, well, Pastor, it doesn't actually say anything about that right there in Genesis 1. But when we zoom out and you look at Genesis 2, 
So you're not even zooming out that far. Maybe you're just looking at the next page over. Look at Genesis 2, and you'll recall that Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 tell the same story. Uh, In particular, the latter portion of Genesis 1 tells the story of the sixth day of creation. That's what Genesis 2 does, but it does it from a different angle. It's a little bit more detailed. And Genesis 2 describes the creation of humanity. And we get this this entire picture from 18 on in Genesis 2 about Adam being alone. So God caused him to fall asleep, and then he creates the woman from the man. We've talked about this in past weeks. But then... We're told in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What Moses is saying right after he describes the creation of man and woman in Genesis 2 is that what they were created to be was husband and wife. Okay, so we take that and we go back to Genesis 1, which is telling us the same story. It does it kind of uh, with broader uh, strokes, a little bit more uh, succinctly without as many details. And when we're told that God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them, verse 27, and then says to them, we know from Genesis 2, them, that is a married couple. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't just say to men and women, be fruitful and multiply. He says it to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. So, Calvin writes this, God intends the human race to be multiplied by generation, that is to say procreation, but not as in brute animals by promiscuous intercourse. Man and woman who are united in marriage. Well, this is something, again, our culture says, well, that's not really true. That doesn't matter. A prominent example of this would be Nick Cannon. I don't know if anybody knows that name. Um... Some of you will think I'm pretty hip that I know that name. But he's the host of America's Got Talent, and another show I'm told is called The Masked Singer. Um, And he's a celebrity. That's really all that matters. But he just announced um, a few weeks ago, mid-December, that he welcomed his 12th child. And some of us hearing that would say, good for him. We need larger families. That's wonderful. Well, here's the problem. It was his fourth child in 2022. Four children to four different women in 2022, the mothers of which are all on board with this. They're all okay with this. He's not a polygamist, this is what he would say, because he's not married to any of them. He has an open relationship with at least four of the six women who are mothers to his children. When you type this in Google, you'll find multiple websites that try to map out Nick Cannon's family tree, and it gives you a headache to, to follow this, how this all makes sense. Uh, just last week, if you didn't think I was hip, now I'm going to talk about the rapper Akon. I don't know who he is either. But I read this in an article. He's a proud polygamist. He does call himself a polygamist. And they asked him on this radio interview about Nick Cannon. And they said, what do you think about this? And this is what he said. He said, this is how life is meant to be. This is how it's supposed to be. Well, again, we read from Calvin. Let us then mark whom God here addresses when he commands them to multiply and increase and to whom he limits his benediction, his blessing upon that increasing. He says, certainly he does not give the reins to human passions, sexual passions, but beginning at holy and chaste marriage, he proceeds to speak of the production of offspring. The question then is proposed, Calvin says, whether fornicators or adulterers can become fruitful by the power of God. Because we said the only reason man and woman can procreate is because God blessed them. Okay, well, why is it that people outside of marriage can have children? 
I answer, this is a corruption of the divine institute. And whereas God produces offspring from this muddy pool, as well as from the pure fountain of marriage, this will tend to their greater destruction. This is heaping up judgment and sin. Still, that pure and lawful method of increase, which God ordained from the beginning, remains firm. This is that law of nature, which common sense declares to be inviolable. So, he calls it common sense. It's a law of nature. Well, Nick Cannon said in an interview that monogamy is Eurocentric, but clearly it's theocentric. It, has, uh, it comes from God, and it has God's design and purpose at its center. Sadly, Nick Cannon even admitted publicly, quote, I'm guilty that I feel guilty. I'm guilty that I'm not there every day for his kids. I mean, they live in six different places, 12 of them. I'm guilty that the mothers of my children yearn for more, but I can only give so much. Well, Mr. Cannon is missing that first and fundamental, fundamental uh, plan that God has for family, that it's built on that relationship of a man and woman in marital uh, fidelity. And that's for the benefit and the security of each spouse, just as it is for the benefit and security of the children. The children require, in God's design, he get, grants to them uh, what, what a man as, as, a husband, as a father can give to the children and a woman as a mother can give to their children. Uh, there's a man to guard and keep the family as God commands him to keep the garden, guard and keep the garden, someone to protect and provide. There's a mother to nourish her children. Uh, the biological differences between men and women, namely the fact that through a woman's body, she can literally gestate, deliver, and then feed a child. That's one indi- indication of the different responsibilities men and women ought to carry out in the family uh, life. The husband being the head of his wife is naturally then the head of the family, and yet children are called to submit and to obey to both parents equally. Uh, think about this, the command to honor your father and your mother. That comes in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. And yet, according to our Westminster Confession, it says that God's moral law, which he gave to Adam in the garden, was later written down as the Ten Commandments. In other words, the Ten Commandments didn't create these laws. It wrote down what has always been God's law that's clearly um, perceived in nature. So this unit, a monogamous, one flesh union of a husband and wife who bear and raise children is how God's plan for humanity is to be accomplished, to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over it that happens through this family. The language of having dominion that we read of there in verse 28 is royal language. It elevates not just the man, not just the husband and wife, but the entire family. It elevates the entire family and indeed the entire human race, to the position of kings of the creation. Moreover, it's not just humans as humans that are to have dominion, but it's humans as a family that are to have dominion. Wow, this is God's plan for the family, that the family will have dominion. Psalm 115, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. It's through the family that God's plan for humanity is fulfilled. You cannot remove the idea of family from God's plan for the world, God's plan for humanity. You need the idea of family there. One theologian puts it like this, that cultural commission was a family mandate, not only in the sense that it was to be performed by the family, but in the sense that 
the perfection of the family itself was the cultural task to be accomplished. When God says to multiply and to increase and to have dominion, he's saying work together as a family. The family itself will grow and be perfected until his kingdom comes. And that's why when the curse of sin comes into the picture, its effects are immediately felt where? On the family. Immediately. Now we're considering sin's effects on the family. The marital relationship will be threatened. Your desire will be contrary to your husband. He'll rule over you. Genesis 3.16. Childbirth, an indispensable component in, in fulfilling God's plan for the world, will be excruciatingly painful. I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Verse 16, also chapter 3. Uh, the human family's commission to rule over the world will be frustrated at every turn. That's what he says to Adam. This isn't going to be easy anymore. Verses 17 through 19. Sin's effects are felt in the family. And you felt them too. I think we could kind of broadly say sin affects the family in at least two ways. The first is in the broken family. The broken family. The Pew Research Center recently reported uh, almost a quarter of U.S. children live in a single-parent home. A quarter of U.S. children. That is more than in any other country. Any other country. Brokenness, though, is not marked merely by statistics like divorce. Uh, A broken home could be one in which the design that God has for parental authority is discarded and and inverted, where the children run the show, for example. Um, Or the opposite, a broken family, a broken home is one in which the children are neglected, where they're malnourished, whether that be emotionally or physically. When you remove the Bible from how you view the world and life, when you remove the ethics that the Bible gives us, we don't know what to make of the family and how it should run. The New York Times ran an article a few weeks ago entitled, 10-year-old gets a tattoo, mother arrested. Like story explains uh, how this happened, how a 10-year-old boy walked into the nurse's office of his elementary school, Highland, New York, and asked for some Vaseline. He wanted to rub it on his new tattoo, which is a crude rendering of his name in large block letters on the inside of his forearm. The nurse called the police. The boy had gotten the tattoo with his mother's permission from a neighbor, according to local authorities. Now, here's the fascinating part to me. Quote in the article is pediatric expert Dr. Cora Bruner saying this, It is a permanent mark or a symbol you're putting on your body, and I don't think that kids under 18 have the kind of agency to make a decision like that. We need to look at these laws again. Maybe you're thinking the same thing I thought when I read that. In this country, at the same time, the big push is for parental rights to be stripped uh, when it comes to adolescents making decisions about Puberty blockers, gender transitioning, body mutilating, and life-altering procedures. So how can we have these things together, right? Uh, A world in which, a country in which a mom gets arrested for letting her son get a tattoo, but uh, also a world in which parents are not permitted to know if their children are doing things that are far more permanent than that. Well, when you remove the Bible and the ethics that the Bible gives us, we're confused. We don't know what's right. We don't know what's wrong. There is no path to wholeness, only brokenness. And again, brokenness can be even felt more broadly. A broken family is one in which a wife does not love her husband, a one in which a father mistreats his children, a one in which children don't obey their parents, one in which siblings hate each other. I don't think it is without significance that immediately after the fall, the first kind of picture we're given of how sin plays out is when a brother kills a brother. Sin affects the family. It breaks the family 
And every single one of us in this room have experienced that. Because to some extent or another, we all come from broken families. So there's the broken family. There's also then the fruitless family, the other way in which sin affects the family. God says, be fruitful and multiply. And he gives Adam and Eve the blessing to enable them to conceive children. But that blessing has been interrupted by a curse. What do I mean? I mean that infertility is a result of the fall. Now, hear me clearly when I say that. It's a result of the fall. I don't mean that people who are infertile are being especially honed by God, zoned, or picked out by God and, and cursed. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that it's, it's, a, it's a punishment for sin. I'm saying the fact that there are even couples in the world who can't get pregnant is because sin has affected this world. The inability to conceive children is a hurt that is felt more deeply than even the physical pain of bearing children and delivering children. And many Christian couples long to conceive and are unable. And the church should come around those couples with their prayers, sometimes just with our silent presence, and with our encouragement, with our sympathy. Because sin hurts, not just when people sin against us, not just when we sin, but when we feel the effects of sin. That's hard, and it hurts. So a fruitless family is, is only... Uh, only exists in a world in which sin exists. That should cause us to mourn. But there are others who are not fruitful, not from infertility, but from indifference. Indifference to the biblical command to be fruitful. I knew a Christian couple during their engagement who were quite vocal about how they did not want to have any kids. And they felt like uh, it would be a burden to their respective careers. They couldn't imagine bringing another human into the equation of their love. They were so in love with each other. They couldn't imagine sharing that love with somebody else. But more, I think most importantly, they both shared that they had bad childhoods. And they couldn't imagine bringing a child into this world where there's so many things that are messed up. And the other day was their 10th wedding anniversary. So I, you know, I stalked them on Facebook for a little bit just to see if things changed. I didn't really keep up with them much anymore. But 10 years in, they still do not have children. I don't know if things have changed. Maybe that's not the reason why I'm not saying that. But I do know that they were quite vocal that they did not want to have kids. As Christians, though, we must affirm that raising children, having and raising children, is a non-negotiable aspect of imaging God in this world and fulfilling his plan for humanity. That's God's design. We don't get to say, I don't want to have kids. We can't say, how could I bring kids into this world? Because God commands us to. That's how. That's why. We don't get to say no to that. Sometimes in God's providence, providence says no to us. I'm not speaking about that situation here. I'm saying where we don't have a desire. That must be repented of. The psalmist celebrates the believing wife in Psalm 128 and calls her a fruitful vine. That's what wives are meant to be. And so we should live lives that embrace the blessing and don't reflect the curse, right? Not having children is a part of the curse, the fall of sin, the effects of the fall. To voluntarily say, I want to look like that, is to say, I want to look more like the curse of sin than the blessing of God. So we've seen God's plan for the family. We see how sin disrupts it. Now in closing, God's plan through the family. His plan for the family is one that was assaulted by sin uh, in myriads of ways. But we should be inspired tonight to learn that God's plan for the family cannot be thwarted. 
that God's promises, that God promises redemption for the family. And here's the really fascinating thing. It's a redemption that actually comes through the family. No sooner has sin entered the world than does God promise deliverance from that sin. And how does he promise it? The child of the woman, the seed of the woman, the descendant from the woman will crush the serpent's head. A child is God's plan for the redemption of the world. And so underscoring God's initial command to be fruitful and multiply, now humanity has even more reason to be fruitful and multiply. Namely, their salvation will come through being fruitful and multiplying. And notice who God announces this to. It's in Genesis 3, right? Verse 15. Who's God talking to in Genesis 3.15? Not to Eve. Not to Adam. He's talking to the serpent. The serpent who will use all of his power and all of his craft and all of his influence to try to destroy the family. God's plan for the family. God says to him right out the gate, as soon as sin enters the world, I know what you're trying to do, Satan. You're trying to destroy this family. My plan for the family, I'm going to tell you right now, it won't work. It will not succeed. In fact, it is through the family that I will bring the Savior of the world. Nothing can stop that child from coming because nothing can destroy God's plans for the family. Now, that plan was initially given as a work for man. And now it becomes God's work of grace. Because the mandate, be fruitful and multiply, that he gives to Adam and Eve, that transforms. Look at Genesis 17. So it's a command in Genesis 1, verse 28, which we've read. And then Genesis 17. In the covenant of grace, God says to Abraham, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Not be fruitful. I will make you fruitful. Sin has weakened our ability to keep God's commands. He says, I'll keep it for you. I will make you fruitful. The entire Old Testament is structured around faith in this promise. Will God make his people fruitful? Will he make them fruitful to the point in which a child can come that will save the world? That's why there are so many obscure and lengthy genealogies in the Old Testament, right? We wonder, why, did, why is this here? Why did, why did anybody care? Ancient Israel loved the genealogies because they were proof that God has been keeping his promise and his plan for the family, right? They're, they're tracking, is that child here yet? Is the Messiah come yet? Moses kicks off the grand story of the history of God's people in Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. We're just going to talk about family history, Moses says. And from that point on, the entire Bible can be summed up as the story of the family of God's people. And even when the curse of sin, namely barrenness, seems to threaten the future of that family, God intervenes supernaturally to ensure that blessing wins out over curse. All three of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all three of their wives were barren. Sarah, Rachel, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, all three of them barren, unable to conceive children. And you can bet that every time when, when a month would go through and she wasn't pregnant, they're thinking, is that promise going to come true? Will that child actually come? Can God maintain his plan through the family? And God miraculously does. Satan tries by the effects of sin to thwart the plan. But we see 
how in each case a divine intervention brings fertility to these women. God's blessing will always win out over sin's curse. That's good news tonight. God's blessing will always win out over sin's curse. And indeed, the arrival of a little baby boy in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago proved the faithfulness of God. And he was a boy who came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Then the ministry of this child, the Messiah, not only redeemed the world through the family, but it also reimagined the family altogether. Jesus transforms how, one's, how one becomes part of the family of God. Before, you need to belong to one of those genealogies, right? You needed to have your great-great-great-grandfather's name listed somewhere in, in Ezra or First Chronicles or Genesis. But Jesus says in Luke eight twenty one, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Christ opens wide the boundaries of God's family. It's not so much about relationship as it is about response. Do you believe? Then you're in. You're in. It's not through birth, but through rebirth. It's through the Spirit of God coming upon our hearts, cleansing us through our union to Jesus and making us fit for the family of God. And when the Spirit does that, you can call God your Father and you can call Jesus your brother. And it's through this family of faith that God's initial plan for the family be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth. Now it's not through that biological family, but it's through the family of faith, the church, that that plan will come to ultimate fruition. The be fruitful, multiply of Genesis one twenty eight gives way to the go and make disciples of Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Did you know on six occasions, Luke in the book of Acts six times uses the phrase fruitful and multiply... That same exact phrase, and he uses it speaking of the growth of the church, about the spreading of God's word. Acts 6, verse 7 is one example. The word of God continued to increase, and the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly. Now that we have the spirit of God, we can actually bear fruit for God. And now all who believe, whether you are single, whether you are widowed, whether you are orphaned, all who believe can become part of God's family and can fulfill God's plan for the family. We can all be fruitful and we can all multiply. Now that God's plan for humanity has been accomplished in Christ, he is the one who has dominion. Everything is is in subjection under his feet, though it doesn't appear that way. But soon what has been accomplished in Christ will be made evident and will be shared by all who have their faith in him. It is through him that we secure the royal purpose for which God made us to become a kingdom and a priest to our God, and we will reign with him on the earth. Now, with that being said, that God's ultimate plan for the family is fulfilled through the church, I don't want you to think then the Christian has no responsibility for the actual family here. Um, it doesn't mean that, there is, uh, that the family doesn't matter anymore. Because we're called not only to be part of God's family, and we see how do we become part of God's family? Now it's not through birth, it's through rebirth, it's through faith. But that's not the only thing that matters. It's not just becoming part of God's family, but it's also having a godly family. And the New Testament is, is rife with, uh, with um, in, in, in exhortations and instructions for what the family should look like and how the family should operate. We should have husbands who live with their wives in an understanding manner. Wives who are submissive, parents who are gentle and patient, children who are obedient, families that are centered around God's word. 
And whatever station you're called to in life, whatever station, you should be pro-family. You should support the family. You should encourage the family. You should defend marriage. You should encourage parents. You should support children. Whenever you go home tonight, your family is going to look different from, from everybody else here. And yet, when you're here, you're reminded this is your family too. You have spiritual children that you should be looking out for, spiritual siblings that you should be praying for, and so forth. But if we ourselves are blessed by God to have children, we are called to raise those children in the fear of the Lord. The expansion of the covenant uh, does not negate the importance of the literal family. Remember Peter says at Pentecost, he expands the covenant when he says the promise is for those who are far off. Wow. That's amazing. It doesn't matter anymore if your names are in those genealogies. It doesn't matter if you're Gentile. The promise is for those who are far off. What does he say first, though? The promise is for you and your children. For your children. If you are blessed to have children, and you're to raise them in the fear of the Lord, and knowing that God promises fruitfulness, that, that, that what he wants from you, he will grant to you, that his fruitfulness will be borne out in your life, and those of your children, that should give you all the more reason to embrace his original plan for the family. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for your word, and it speaks so authoritatively and clearly upon uh, matters that are uh, of much discussion and debate in our culture and society today. We do ask that even as we've spent some minutes tonight considering your word, that we would spend our whole lives uh, submitting ourselves to your word and what your word Uh, teaches us. We thank you for the gift of family. Thank you for the family of faith that you've brought us into through uh, conversion. We ask that we would support both of these institutions, that we would support um, the family, uh, marriages, parents, children, that we would support our relatives in the faith here in in the church. Thank you that, that you have brought us into your your family. And indeed, we can call you Abba, Father, which makes all the difference. And having that confidence that, that we belong to you in that way, would we be all the more ready to serve and live, uh, serve you and live for you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.